Welcome to The Table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. the day of the Lord, darkness, not light, and gloom, with no brightness in it. I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals I would not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I would not listen to the melody, melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters 
and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amos chapter 7, 7 to 9, chapter 8, 1 to 2. This is what the Lord showed me. The Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, see, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel. I will never again pass them by. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. And this is also what the Lord God showed me, a basket of summer fruit. He said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. In his best-selling book, The Closing of the American Mind, the 20th century American philosopher, Alan Bloom, who throughout his career taught at, at Cornell and at Yale, he claims in his book that there is one thing that any professor at at a university can be sure about any new student coming in to college. And that's, it's that that they generally, they generally believe that truth is relative. And this plays out in a variety of ways. In the United States, In a democracy like ours, Bloom philosophized that the theory of equal rights and the striving for equal rights, it it influences the way we think. But not just in politics, it influences um, the way we think about morality. It influences the way we see and, and understand art, even. And the result of this is that every value is thought to be as true as any other value. And the only absolute often becomes the need and desire to to remain absolute less. The need or desire to remain valueless, completely open to the world around us and non-judgmental, intolerant of others and other viewpoints. And so so Bloom talked about how he noticed the effect this had on, on his students, particularly new students entering college for the first time, the majority of them unknowingly believing that, that truth is relative and that there, there are no absolutes. I mean, one person thinks that Dante is is the best poet, the greatest poet who ever lived. Another person thinks that Shakespeare. Another person thinks Maya Angelou. That's okay, right? That's okay. We're all coming from different places. You experiment with drugs in college, you know, to take the edge off, and you you cheat on your boyfriend, that boyfriend you have back home in your small town, 
you cheat on him and you dodge his phone calls and you lie to him about where you are and how you're spending your time. But, but who am I to judge? That's, that's not where I'm at. But, but I'm not going to say anything. You do you and I'll, I'll do me and, and these things will not come up between us. And religion? I mean, aren't all religions true? Just as long as, as you're sincere about it and you don't push it on other people, right? If, if Bloom was alive today, he would likely attribute the current climate of division and, and outrage in our society, in our nation, to the fact that we have become so habituated to openness that when anyone challenges our, our openness, we're just stunned and amazed and often offended by it. A couple of years ago, uh, an NBC nightly news anchor, you know him, Lester Holt, gave a commencement address that kind of just made waves in the collegiate community. His audience was, was just stunned and amazed and, and offended even, not to hear the usual things that make up a, a, commi- a commencement address, but to hear something that almost sounded like a sermon, where, where he made an argument in a secular university's commencement address using the Ten Commandments to do it. And he, and he made the clear point that there is a reason why they're not called the Ten Recommendations. And people were stunned. They're surprised to hear this major news network anchor at a secular university of all places, this, this space of relativism and openness, right? Willing to speak publicly about moral absolutes. It's because, as Bloom said, we're we're generally relativists. We learned in school and and in college that that we, we share no real standard by which to measure our common lives. I mean, even, even Lester Holt's Ten Commandments are often open to a myriad of interpretations, right? Does, does thou shall not kill speak to capital punishment? Does it speak to euthanasia? Could we use it to defend against abortion? Does honor your mother and your father? What does that mean? Does it, does it mean a duty to, to take care of your parents in old age? And to what extent? And where do we draw the line? Between thou shalt not covet, one of the Ten Commandments, and that kind of healthy ambition that drives success and the American economy. 
And it's at this point when Christians like us are kind of chattering on about how little we can really even know about God and God's intent and God's will. I mean, especially God's will in a a complex society like ours. It's when we're kind of rattling on like this that the prophet Amos comes along and says, enough. Apparently, Amos thinks there is an absolute. In his most famous vision, Amos says this, God is lowering a plumb line in the midst of his people, Israel, to see if they are upright. The way a carpenter checks a wall, and it will not be the wall that decides if it is worthy to stand, but it will be the one who lowers the line. And in his less famous vision, but no less important, no no less poignant, provocative, Amos describes God running a basket of, of, of summer fruit under the noses of his people to gauge how blinded they are by their own personal wealth to, to the rarity of, of access. To this and the hands that picked it. Amos is called a social prophet. But what's important to know is that he prophesied not to the whole of society. No, he prophesied to a religious community at a religious shrine. Why? Because only religious people are capable of repentance. Why? Because only a religious community has ever been in a covenant relationship with God for whom truth is not relative. And there is always an absolute. This is why it makes no sense for for modern day prophets to say, repent America. Because America doesn't know how to repent. This, this is the space where repentance is taught, where repentance is practiced. America or or any other nation does not have the resources to repent. Amos is called a social prophet and yet he has not the first idea, slightest idea of how to organize a society or to make a society generally better, but that's not, it's not why he's been sent by God. Prophets aren't sociologists or, or community activists or city commissioners. They are messengers. And so what does a prophet do then? A prophet utters a visceral cry. Prophet cries out. That's what they do. And because the prophet cries, the prophet's voice always seems to be like one octave higher than we would like it to be. And that's why the prophet grates on us. 
and we find this voice annoying and inconvenient and piercing and agitated, and we often can't stand or entertain the words of a prophet. And so a prophet is, is often killed or, or silenced or pushed out, marginalized, usually neutralized in, in some way, some way to reduce the cry of the prophet to just a whimper or to just talk. Amos was no political scientist, no societal theorist, no philosopher like Bloom. But he had what all prophets have. He had eyes to see and he had a voice to cry. And here's what Amos saw. He saw this strong central government in the northern kingdom swallowing up land held for generations by the people. He saw the gulf between the rich and and the poor growing and growing and growing. And he saw the poor living in terrible, terrible poverty on the land and servitude to to the greater goal of profit and power. And he saw the oppressors living living lifestyles of the rich and the famous in cities, stretching themselves on beds made of ivory and drinking wine out of silver bowls, as Amos describes it. And and the oppressors, they, they needed the poor. They needed the poor in servitude to the, to the, the profit off of the land, not only to pay their interior Decorators, but, but also to stockpile weaponry against their growing Assyrian enemy. And in this time, as in, as in most times of prosperity, religion was, was also booming. Pilgrims by the cart loads were coming to Bethel. This, this great religious shrine in the north coming to Bethel, ancient Israel's version of, of, of this religious theme park, where, where for 25 cents you can see the very location of, of Jacob's ladder. And, and the message that these pilgrims heard when they got to Bethel was one of the oldest and most satisfying religious messages out there. God blesses the righteous. You are obviously loaded with blessings. Look at all that you have, all that God has given you. God has favor on you. Therefore, you are righteous. And once more, what you don't have now, these, these preachers of Bethel would say, well, what you don't have now, you will have on the day of the Lord. That's right, I said the day of the Lord. That's the day when the Lord will come back, glory, hallelujah, to take over this land and the economy and to defeat all of our enemies. Something, something good is going to happen to each and every one of you on the day of the Lord. Each and every one of us who with all of our blessings have already been proven righteous before God. 
quite a sideshow they had in, in, in Bethel. No wonder it was prospering. But the pro- prophet Amos arrives on the scene and he says, Let me tell you about the day of the Lord. I, I, I've seen it. I have seen your great stone houses collapsing into ruin. And I have seen your women yoked together like oxen led through the breaches of the walls of the city. And I have seen your entire civilization go down this black hole, which is Assyria. It is going to happen, Amos said. And you and I have seen the future, not only through, through the, the rear view mirror of, of history, which allows us to know that what Amos prophesied actually happened through the, through the utter destruction and disappearance of Israel by the Assyrians in real time. But, but we have also seen, also seen God's future. We've also seen God's future in in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have seen what the the whole cosmos could could look like, judged and reconciled to the Creator. We've seen in Jesus Christ what it looks like when, when a creature is in harmony with the Creator. God was in Christ reconciling the world and will reconcile the world unto God's self. As the the apostle puts it in 1 John, Beloved, it, it does not yet appear what we shall be. Friends, rarely in, in the Old Testament does it say that God hates. You might, might think you know where, God, where it says that. But, but when it does, it, it usually says something like, um, God hates evil. Or God hates those who perpetrate violence. But you, did you hear it in Amos today? What, what makes Amos stand up off the page for us? Is that here God says, I, I hate your religion. I hate the way my church is is always on the make for the wrong kind of influence. I hate how you have barnacled up to the power elites in your society and have forgotten your own calling. I hate that you are, are so well off and care so little for the poor. I hate it. Oh, I have heard and I've seen your worship services. They're done supposedly in honor of me, but, but, I, but I see through them, God says, and, and, and know that they are merely projections of you. What, what's, the, what's the standard for this kind of hatred? Why is God so riled up here? Is it, is it because we, we've got our doctrine wrong or, or don't have the right feelings about Jesus? 
Or is it because we're saying the wrong words about some great social issues of our day? No. Neither. God is so riled up because in the way that we live towards others, we have revealed that we've forgotten the poor. Can you imagine a God who organizes an entire moral universe around our willingness to care for others? A God who says, in as much as you have done it to the least of these, you do it to me. That's that's the plumb line, friends, that God is lowering into the church to see if these walls, we within them, can stand. That's the summer basket of fruit that God is waving under our noses to see if we even recognize our own personal wealth and privilege. God sees through our our, our performative posturing about about justice and, and knows that we we generally bend toward relativism. God knows that we are a flame for justice when we need something from the system, like a tax break, but 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 in, indifferent towards justice, or made uncomfortable about justice when when we are in control. It's not that we don't care, but our but our caring and concern is just, let's be honest, dependent on on media stimulation. If it were not for our membership in the Church of Jesus Christ, we we wouldn't even know the true identity of the oppressed, of the least of these. Amos, shocked, startled, offended his hearers when he called the unblessed the righteous. Only only a covenant community who knows Jesus Christ can know how much absolute value God places on, on the battered and on the mistreated and on the lonely and the aged and, and the demonized and the scapegoated on the outcast and the poor. Because God's son became one of these and, and reached out to others. Because God's son proclaimed righteousness and justice and subjected himself to injustice. The church is called in, in every generation to, to be a, a prophetic community in that generation. In every generation, the church has gotten lost on that journey. In, in the present crisis and coming tribulation of, of coronavirus, there is and will be a, a tremendous debate over personal responsibility and and. and and personal rights, and if this pandemic affects the society the way the way many say that it will, 
you will see theories of justice and theories of righteousness and doctrines of relativism shuffled and reshuffled like cards in a deck. Some will refuse to see any, any moral dimension to the current prophetic cries from, from our streets. Seeming to believe that the problem will just go away as the summer ends. And in the breakdown there, the Church of Jesus Christ, who knows the value of the outcast, will prophesy she better, not through a, a few voices of eccentric prophets, but by being herself, by living in the community and the world. It, it will prophesy, she will prophesy by sitting with, and repenting for and listening to. Thereby modeling for the world that community of righteousness that the world must have in its midst to continue. And what is, what is the source of that righteousness? Amos says, seek me and live. For those who are righteous... Participate in justice. So what's a prophet to do? The prophet looks into the rear view mirror of history and then looks ahead and sees God's preferred future and cries out. He cries out, he utters a cry, let it rain, let it rain down, let it rain down justice on a society filled with oppression and pain. Let it rain down justice on the church that she may know God's river of righteousness. Let it rain down on us today that our roots in Jesus Christ may be renewed. This is our prayer in unison with the prophet Amos. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like this ever-flowing stream. Let it rain. Today, I would, I would love for you to hear from a couple in our congregation who, who today is looking into the rearview mirror of history and inviting you to look to, to see what's there and how it points to God's preferred future for for them and for us. Would you listen? Hi, church. I'm Megan. And I'm Carly. And this is the first and probably only edition of The Collinses Teach History. So today's June 28th, which is a pretty significant date in the LGBTQ rights movement. It's the 51st. 51st anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, which we'll talk about more in just a minute. Um, a lot of people who know about Stonewall or have heard of it might assume that it was the first time that members of the community really rose up against the police harassment that was happening during that time. However, that's not true. There are many incidents of um, members of the LGBTQ community kind of standing up about against what was happening during that time. So one of the first documented incidents was Cooper's Donuts in 1959 in LA. 
Um, Cooper's Donuts was a place that was frequented by drag queens and trans women especially. And on a night in May 1959, police officers came in demanding to see IDs, which was very common during that time, because if your gender presentation didn't match what was on your ID, they automatically arrested you. And on this night, um, other patrons, seeing what was happening, um, just started throwing coffee cups, napkins, forks, whatever they could get a hold of, yelling at the police, and they actually left without the people they were trying to arrest. And that was 1959, 10 years prior to Stonewall. Seven years later in San Francisco, there was the Compton's Cafeteria riots. Again, Compton's Cafeteria was a place that was frequented by drag queens and trans women. However, the management didn't like that. They didn't want to be known as that kind of place. So they frequently called the police um, to come and um, arrest everyone. In August 1966, um, when they were trying to arrest the, the drag queens and the trans women, they started fighting back. They started hitting the police officers, kicking them. The fight spilled out into the street. Uh, car windows of the police cars were busted out. A newsstand um, was lit on fire. So it actually evolved into a riot, a very localized riot, but a riot nonetheless. A year later, at the Black Cat Tavern, in um, also in L.A., um, it was New Year's Eve, and plainclothes officers were sort of undercover at the party. And at the stroke of midnight, when everybody was giving each other um, New Year's Eve kisses, men kissing men, the officers made their presence known, started making arrests. It didn't erupt into violence, but the community was outraged that this night that was supposed to be about happiness and celebration and togetherness turned into this scary event. So local organizations started um, organizing a protest, and the first mass protest happened a week later. So all these incidents are just examples that set a precedent for Stonewall happening um, in 1969. Yep, so that does bring us to Stonewall. So bars have historically been a place that's very safe um, for uh, LGBTQ people. Um, so someplace that they could be themselves. And so um, Stonewall is actually this crappy little place in New York City um, that was owned by mobsters. And the mobsters would extort the patrons um, for keeping their silence, basically, and not outing them to the community. And so at 1.20 a.m. on the 28th, the police bang on the door of Stonewall and yell, we're taking this place. And so what happened was, of course, they storm in and they start arresting people who were cross-dressing, whose gender didn't appear to match what's on their um, IDs and things like that. And usually when this would happen, um, you're either arrested or you run home. And it was a little bit different this night. There, the Stonewall was packed with people. And so as they were leaving, they, they were congregating outside on the sidewalk. And what actually happened was that sidewalk kind of became like a stage. So as people were leaving, they were blowing kisses to the crowd, they were posing, um, and the crowd loved it. There was applause. Um, and then they started bringing up people who were arrested and they were actively um, resisting their arrest as this crowd was um, supporting them. And so eyewitness accounts vary on the exact details um, of what happened next, but the story goes something like this that there was a woman who was being violently um, dragged to a police car under arrest. And she looked at the crowd and said, why don't you do something? And they did. 
Um, so the crowd began to throw bottles and rocks and stuff at the officers. Um, the officers retreated into the Stonewall Inn, um, which enraged the crowd because that's their place, that's their safe place. And so they actually busted out the windows, threw Molotov <coughs> cocktails into um, the Stonewall Inn, lit it on fire. Um, so the riot police show up, and as they show up, there's actually a chorus line of mostly drag queens and trans women who are um, kicking their legs and chanting and singing at the riot police. And this enrages the police. Um, they start to um, chase down the protesters. There's lots of beatings, and luckily um, no one died. Um, but by 4 a.m., things had pretty much calmed down, but there was a huge sense of camaraderie from the group there that they had all banded together and lifted each other up um, to fight back. Yeah. Uh, and that sense of camaraderie uh, just really lasted and, and definitely evolved into what we know as the, the Pride Movement today. So, you know, on the anniversary of the riots, um, and, and the modern pride movement beginning, we just thought it was really important to be able to step back and, and really ask, you know, how does a riot, something that was, you know, violent, evolve into what we know as pride today? And we're talking about, you know, when you're living under constant systemic oppression, um, you know, laws are stacked against you, you know, if our community church is shunning you, police officers are arresting you simply for existing the very active rioting of resisting, of pushing back, takes an immense amount of pride. Um, before you can stand up, before you can even feel angry, you first have to believe that you're worth it, that you are worth that fight. And you have to have that sense of worth and pride in who you are to resist the ones who are telling you to stay quiet and just accept your oppression. And, and so as we reflect on the legacy of the Stonewall riots and, and everything that came before, um, we understand how relevant that legacy remains today. So that's it for us. Um, thank you for watching The Collinses Teach History. Happy Pride!